Hi, I'm Rick Steves. For a vacation that mixes relaxation, fine cuisine, and a sophisticated joie de vivre that only the French can offer, there may be no better itinerary than a week on a canal barge in rural France. In the hour ahead, we'll learn how canal barging offers a unique and leisurely way to experience the French countryside. Whether you're dozing on a barge in Burgundy or dealing with waiters in a snobby Parisian restaurant, you might find the French ways a little, shall we say, challenging. Coming up, we'll explore the fine points and faux pas that can help you understand the French from an American who owns a house in Burgundy. Steve Smith believes that the difference between a Francophobe and a Francophile is simply a matter of understanding the cultural differences. With Steve's help, we'll better be able to say both Vive la France and Vive la Différence. We're heading for France and taking your calls in the hour ahead as we travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines. With their new Advantage Award booking tool, it's easier than ever to book to over 800 Advantage Award destinations online at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly. France, the more you understand it, the better you like it. That's my experience anyway. Hey, when we can understand the cultural differences between our culture and the French culture, we can celebrate the differences. That's what the French say, vive la différence. We'll be joining my Francophile friend, Steve Smith, to get into the differences that make France such a wonderful place to travel. And have you ever told yourself on your next vacation, we're going to go one place and stay put for a week or even more? See how slow you can get your pulse in the French countryside. We're barging in France with William and Marie Altman, who fell in love with the boating life and will lure us on board. Coming up on Travel with Rick Steves. Let's start today's edition of Travel with Rick Steves with your calls. Rosemary in Sacramento, thanks for your call. Yes, I'm excited about our trip next week. You're going next week. Where are you going? Paris. Paris. Well, what's on your mind about that? Well, uh, my husband and I, um, it's his first time there. My, I haven't been there in 15 years, and we think we got a great deal. But right. what we found out was with our great deal, we got a, a hotel that's sort of off the beaten path. It's by, gosh, it's past the, what is it? I know I'm going to say this wrong. Periphery. Well, the periphery. That's the big ring road, the freeway that circles Greater Paris. Yeah. Right, and it's outside of that by the Le Kremlin mm-hmm. and by mm-hmm. Gentilly. Okay. And so we were thinking, well, we got such a great deal. Should we just happily take the metros to um, sites, or should we, once we get there, try to find a place that's closer to the sites we want to see? So, Rosemary, you're saying you got a great deal. Was that a package with the airfare and the hotel together? Yes, four seventy a person. Four seventy a person to fly from California to Paris and back for how long? For six nights. Six nights with a hotel. Yes. Wow. Well, I mean, you got a good deal whether you use the hotel or not, really. That's what we thought. And they stuck you way out in the Tuileries where... Or they can't sell the hotels anyways, so they probably got that for $25 a night from the hotel company, you know. Now, the big issue is not how far to the center is it, but is it served by the RER? In Paris, there's two kinds of subways. There's the regular metro, which uh, goes every stop in the center of town, and then the RER is uh, sort of superimposed on top of that, and it stretches way out into the suburbs, and it leaps five or six stops at a time very fast. If by chance your hotel is near an RER stop, you can get into town very conveniently, and then you might as well take advantage of it. Um, you know, I, I would imagine it's it's served by some kind of train that gets you into the center of town. Look you into say that. The metro's five hundred what meters? Five hundred meters. Well, yeah. okay, so that's uh, five football fields away. You can go and find <laughs> a find a metro station, which that's you know it's not bad. You could for a hundred dollars a night get a good hotel in the center of town. Okay. Okay. So you're gonna have to make that decision. Sure. Um And um, but I think uh, you know, once you get the swing of things, you can hop on that metro. And the neat thing about the metro in Paris is they don't charge you for how long you travel. They just oh. if you go for one stop or all the way across town, or you sit down there and you play gu- your guitar all day long, <laughs> uh, you know, you pay the same fee. You pay about a buck to get into the system. So you can hop onto that metro and just bring your reading and uh, you know, like the local people do, and they commute into the big city. Nice thing about the metro is you'll never have any traffic problems. Oh, that's great. 
Hey, have a good time. Do you have any other questions about your upcoming trip? Yes. I wanted to know how we could try to ensure the best exchange rate when we go to Paris. We need to exchange some money, I would think, before we leave, but then also when we get there. Okay. Well, that's old thinking, uh, Rosemary. Now you've got the um, ATM machines and you've got the euros, okay? Mm -hmm. And in the old days, I would always buy some currency before I left home. Now, if you've got a working ATM card, if you can get money out of your ATM card here, as long as it's numbers, not letters, because they only have number pads in Europe and four digits, you can use, talk to your bank to confirm this, you know, tell them you're going to Paris and want to use your ATM card. And if they give you the okay, you just pop that card into the machine when you get to the airport and you get your cash. And the neat thing about ATMs is you get the same beautiful bank-to-bank rate instead of the miserable tourist to teller rate anywhere uh, 24 hours a day. So leave with a few hundred dollars cash in your pocket in case you need some cash, you know, for some reason. But basically when you get to the airport, first thing I do, find an ATM machine, stick my credit card in there, type in my my secret four numbers, and and I tell them I want 300 euros. Well, great. And then you're off and running. We're so excited about this trip, but I'm sure we, when I hang up the phone, I'll think of about six more I should have asked. Well, you can call us back and let us know how your trip goes. Thanks so much, Rosemary. Thanks. Bye now. And we have John on the line from Columbia, South Carolina. Thanks for your call. How are you doing? Good. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Good, good. What's on your mind? Well, I I have heard a lot of people saying that they're afraid to travel because of anti-Americanism abroad. And um, I've only really traveled in Europe on a regular basis. And um, pretty much most of the Europeans I've met have made a big distinction between the Bush administration and the United States as a whole. Right. And um, I was just wondering, at the same time, President Bush has has kind of antagonized the world community in, in some ways. He, he's been somewhat hostile towards the United Nations and um, and then appointing Paul Wolfowitz as head of the World Bank. And, you know, he's made negative statements about some of our strongest allies, Germany and France. Right. And I was just wondering, do you think President Bush has made international travel more dangerous for hmm. Americans? Well, you know, when he when he appoints Wolfowitz to the World Bank or that the man to the United Nations that doesn't believe the United Nations is a productive organization, you know, people who are tuned into that, like you, think that's kind of curious here. But it, around the world, people really, really know what that means. And that's a strong comment on uh, our, our approach to the world, which is quite unilateral these days. Uh, so, yeah, the people are sort of um, irked by that or concerned about that. But I find, I think like you have, that people distinguish between um, citizens and those citizens' government. And Europeans especially have known from their own experience that governments don't always represent the will of the people. And if they do represent the will of the people, it might be 55% of the people, but not all of the people. I, I think as I, I'm proud to go to Europe or do my international travels as an American. In fact, I think it's important, more important than ever that I travel and, and, and be sort of an ambassador of goodwill in my own way so people understand that there's all different kinds of people politically from the United States. Um, but I took a 1,000 people to France on our tours last year. And uh, you can imagine I'm concerned about the customers who take our tours, uh, how, what kind of experience they're going to have. And I asked each one of them in a, in a, in a survey afterwards, were they re- treated rudely at all because of the political uh, differences between America and France, for instance? Nobody reported being picking up any bad vibes or, or cold treatment because of the political differences between France and Europe. Nobody uh, discounted those differences, but they accepted our travelers as individuals. I spent a month in France, and I found the same experience myself. I even went to a little winery in southern France. There was 10 people in the tour, and half of them were Americans, and half of them were from all over Europe. The ladies started the tour by saying, before we begin, I want to publicly thank the Americans here for their country's hard work and heroics in saving us from the tyranny of Hitler back at, mm. in World War II. You know, and the point is they're just stuttering over there to try to get us to know that they they like us. They're thankful for all of that. You know, they, they remember the Marshall Plan and everything, but that doesn't mean they're going to follow us into every war that, that we want to wage. Um, I think it's pretty safe to say in Europe 80% of the people oppose American foreign policy. I think the governments that do support our foreign policy probably realize it's against the will of the people, but they are making a pragmatic decision that's in the economic best interest of that country uh, that their their populace probably doesn't quite recognize. But it can be very expensive for countries to go against the will of the United States these days. Right. And, and that's something that Europe has learned to live with. I know in my own experience uh, 
Europeans have told me if they don't arrest a few people every year for smoking marijuana, uh, <laughs> they say that their country will lose its favored trade status with the United States. So wow. much as they think it's ridiculous to arrest a, uh, some sort of a, a pot smoker, um, they have to do that every year just to maintain the uh, economic uh, advantages, you see. So it's an interesting issue. Now, with the second election of George Bush, it has changed in Europe. Uh, the first edition, you know, the first election, people could kind of say, well, you didn't know who he was. Well, now we know who he is, and the Europeans kind of cut us a little less slack because of that. They're not rude to us, but they are curious. And I found people, whether it's teenage girls on a skating rink or, or 80-year-old Norwegians in an old folks' home uh, on my last trip, I had them all asking me, tell me about this situation in America, <laughs> you know. So mm -hmm. it's an interesting time to be traveling, but I really want to stress that you're absolutely wrong not to go somewhere because you think the people there will be anti-American. People are pro-American. They just oftentimes don't understand or agree with our government's foreign policy. Right. Mm. Well, I, I, I agree with that. I think that, that, that that's a good viewpoint. And I think people that are open-minded Americans who believe in progress, and believe in international institutions and international law should go and travel so they can let people outside the country know that there are lots of us here that disagree with President Bush, yeah. for example. Well, that you know, I, I believe travel is a force for peace, and mm -hmm. uh, it's just a matter of people get to know each other, they respect each other more. And I've had a fun time writing about this because in my travels I've learned that many countries are waging heroic struggles that we're oblivious to, and it just reminds me that there's a lot of... Uh, People that we're so excited about, people that wish they only had one life to give for, for our country, you know, the Nathan Hales and Ethan Allens and Patrick Henrys. But, you know, every ethnic group has these heroics, and it is quite exciting to get away from our society just a little bit, get out there and uh, gain an appreciation for the um, exciting struggles that are going on and the victories and the defeat that people are having to, to live through. Right, right. And that's, that's a good thing about travel. So um, good luck with your trip. Well, thank you very much. It's good talking with you. Thank you for your call, John. Yeah, bye-bye. Bye. Il revient à ma mémoire des souvenirs familiers. Je revois ma blouse noire lorsque j'étais écolier. Sur le chemin de l'école, je chantais à pleine voix des romances sans parole, vieilles chansons d'autrefois. Douce France. Cher pays de mon enfance, bercé de tendre insouciance, je t'ai gardé dans mon cœur. Mon village, au clocher ou maison sage, où les enfants de mon âge ont partagé mon bonheur. Je t'aime et je te donne ce poème. Oui, je t'aime dans la joie ou la douleur. Douce France, cher pays de mon enfance, bercé de tendre insouciance. Gardé dans mon cœur. We're looking for your original haiku poems, sound effects, or a short essay on where you live. Look in the 15 Seconds of Fame section of our website at ricksteves.com. Next, we're going to fit in with France. Viva la différence. We're talking with my Francophile friend Steve Smith on enjoying the challenging but very rewarding wonders of France, next on Travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines, with 4,000 flights to 250 cities in some 40 countries around the world every day. It's easy to book your next flight at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly.
Bonjour, I'm Rick Steves, and this is Travel with Rick Steves. Today, we're going to France. To me, France is one of these countries that you've got to understand to properly appreciate. And I've warmed up to it slowly over the years, and I've really learned that the more I know and understand France, the more I like it. France is one country where it really does help to have somebody who knows the ins and outs of the culture. It's a sophisticated culture. It's a demanding culture. It's a culture that I think a lot of Americans misunderstand in ways that hurts their ability to enjoy it in their travels. That's why I'm very thankful to have a friend who is a Francophile from top to bottom with me as a partner in my writing and teaching on France and in our studio today. Steve Smith has traveled to France every year for the last 20 years. He's lived and worked in France on several occasions, and today he owns a home in Burgundy, where he bases himself while he's updating the guidebooks that Steve and I write together. Steve co-authors three guidebooks with me on France. We've got a guidebook on France in general, on Paris, and a new one on Provence and the Riviera. It's great to have you here, Steve. Thanks for joining us. Merci. Merci. See, Steve speaks French. And I don't. That's why we're, we're a good partnership, I think, in the books, because I get to be the American bumpkin, not understanding the language. And, and Steve really does understand the language and the culture. Steve, you are a Francophile. And how does that happen? How does an American become a Francophile? In my case, it was from long years of travel and living there. My father was a, a professor of English who took us there on a couple of occasions when I was growing up. And my parents insisted I go to the local French school, not the American international school. And over the years, I sort of became, I came to know France um, as my backyard. And it was very comfortable traveling there for me. Now, you've been leading groups through France for how many years? Uh, Fifteen. Fifteen years. Yeah. That's thousands of Americans you've taken to France. I haven't added them up. What is the What are the challenges of taking a bunch of Americans to Europe, and France is part of the big whirlwind tour, you know? Um, what is your agenda? What is your goal? What are the frustrations in having first-timers from America coming into France? Good question. I think the first thing I, I usually try to do is to slow them down. Typically... Americans try to accomplish too much. And I would say the stakes, uh, the risk is higher in France than most other countries in Europe for having a fast travel pace. If you're moving too fast, you won't, you know, you won't understand the, the menu and you'll blame the French for it, this kind of thing. So slowing, slowing them down and trying to, um, and it's usually not too hard to, to get them not to judge, but to um, watch first, learn, listen, and um, and not to judge the French based particularly on something they read about long ago or from stories they heard about from their parents or grandparents. Do you find Americans are inclined to judge uh, the French culture? I think they come often with preconceived notions. And then very quickly, though, that's changed. What's an example of a preconceived notion? Oh, that they'll be poorly treated um, in Paris because all Parisians are this way. And you know, having lived in Paris, it's it's like New York. I don't know who the Parisians are, but there are Vietnamese, there are Koreans, there are Americans. I think there's like 30,000 Americans living in Paris, Canadians. It's a melting pot. Okay, let's say you're going to France and your first uh, visit is Paris and you're judging the people. It's kind of like going to America and visiting New York and judging how friendly the people mm. are by that sort of big city situation, isn't it? I agree. It's one reason the way we have organized the guidebook we do on Paris is to get people comfortable in three different neighborhoods for restaurants and hotels. I like that. That works mm -hmm. well. Um, now, if you go in the summer, a lot of the Parisians are out of there anyways, aren't they? So you're stuck with sort of the, the unfortunate crowd that happens <laughs> to be left in Paris. Those with enough money go, to go, go. Yeah. The, uh, the history of that is that uh, not just Paris, but you, you notice it maybe more there, um, is that um, entire factories would shut down in July or August. And they'd choose a month and everybody was gone for four or five weeks. Um, and that's how their, the big companies' vacations were organized. I will say, though, that it's really a misnomer to think that museums are closed or restaurants are closed or whatever. Because the common wisdom is, oh, don't go to Paris in August or July because everything's closed. Is that true? Not at all. In fact, except for the occasional heat, and it is occasional, it's not that often, it is, I think, a brilliant time to go in July and August. It's I quieter. visiting you when you lived in Paris. I, I had an easy chance to park my car because yeah, there's lots of it. parking available. Well, and remember, too, Rick, that... Um, other Europeans have the same uh, habits that the French do. So the Germans, the Austrians, the, the Belgians, etc., are going to the mountains and to the sea. Okay, not so the, the resorts cities. would be crowded in July and August. That's what I like. If you can avoid the Riviera and if you can avoid Chamonix and the Alps, in July and August, I would. Okay, but and the downside in Paris is if you need an accountant or a, or a, a dentist, you might have a tough time finding them because they'd be on vacation. Exactly. 
But if you want to go sightseeing, go to a nice cafe, enjoy the uh, the bank of the Seine, boy, it's a good time to be there. Well, there's two other reasons, Rick, and uh, you know, and, our, and I know you you discovered this, I think, before I did, which I hate to admit, but you did. They, in the summertime, there are certain festivities that happen in Paris, like the um, Paris Plage, where they uh, dump tons of sand. They cart in trucks and truckloads of sand, and they so Paris Plage means the Paris Beach. Thanks, yeah, right? the okay. Paris Beach, and on the side of the uh, the River Seine, they create this every summer. Yeah, it's it, what they do is they shut down a, what what is really an expressway. These are two or three high speed lanes with no stops that run along the river that they need. Uh, what would we say, uh, non-summer months for traffic hmm. circulation, close it down entirely for, what is it, five, six weeks? Oh, so they're able to get away with that because there's just flat-out less cars in Paris in the summer. All those dentists are gone. And more people want a beach. That's right. And so they cart in the sand. They make volleyball courts. Um, oh, they have all sorts of frisbee, all sorts of games going on, music. So go to Paris in July and August. You'll find a sandy beach. Yep. On right the river, downtown. if they keep it going, which I think they will for the next couple of years as well. Five-minute walk from the Notre Dame. That's right. Wow. The other thing is what's becoming more popular in Paris are these bike tours. And and it's funny. I, I It reminds me of Munich in the old days when you discovered that. It's becoming popular in Paris, but really summertime is the time to do it. Bike tours where a tourist would hire a, a, probably an expat American with a bike. Exactly. Take you around. You can it. do it on your own too because they have more and more bike lanes. But there's so much less traffic in July and August that if you are at all inclined to do so. So, so these guides take you around and you pedal for a few blocks. You stop. He tells you a story. You pedal again. Right. And you can rent bikes on your own, too. Plus, about that. they close down the streets, don't they, every Friday night or something? That's another one. Thousands. Have you ever seen that? Well, yeah. It's a, this is where they do the uh, the rollerblade. Something like 30,000 uh, rollerbladers. So they close a different route through the city every Friday night. I think it's Friday whatever. evenings, yeah. And then tens of thousands of people are out mm-hmm. in on their bikes, on their rollerblades. It's like a swarm of locusts. You can hear them coming long before you see them. Wow. That must be a social scene for the local people. It's one thing I... The I, tourists probably just stand there uh, amazed, and the local people, it's their community. The, the French, it seems, don't hesitate to spend money and inconvenience others for something they think is important for the common good. Such as? Well, diverting traffic. Some I can just imagine being somebody who doesn't have the good fortune to go on vacation in July and August, and my expressway along the River Seine is now a sandy beach. I'm Friday night. I'm trying to get out of town and go somewhere, and there's rollerbladers on my normal route. Um, it's astonishing what they do to keep that so, city lively for its residents. And mind you, these aren't geared to tourists. Mm-hmm. These events, which are fun for tourists to watch and partake in, are really designed to make life and to make this huge city more appealing for locals. For the low end of the locals who can't go on vacation. I don't know if it's directed that way, but that's how it, I think, often works. Yeah. Well, they're just into good time. I mean, didn't the French invent this whole uh, Club Med kind of concept? That's or? where it started. Hey, when you give people five weeks vacation a year and every Catholic holiday that was ever invented, you've got to figure out something for them to do with all this I think this the time. French were the first to have a formal required paid vacation among its workforce. Yeah, I think you're right. right? That sort of uh, revolutionized the whole idea of entire nations going on vacation. You know, it's, you asked me before, Rick, I'd like to come back to something, um, not to judge uh, the French. I, I think you asked me what Americans might be judging them um, as if when they, when they arrive. Um, and another... Um, perspective that Americans can have is that they are maybe not willing to work as hard as we are. Um, and that might be reinforced by the 35-hour work week that a few years ago was uh, instituted in France. So that everybody who were working 40 hours one day, the next day, were only allowed to work 35 hours or after that they get overtime. And just a little background on that, mm-hmm. the government mandated that employers give their people a 35-hour work week instead of the 40-hour work week or 39 or whatever it was. Mm-hmm. And the government required the employers to pay their employees the same amount of money, and the government subsidized the employers for this, figuring the government would save enough money on unemployment because more people would get employment if everybody was working less, that it would be a wash. And it seems to have been a very successful policy. Well, now people are producing essentially as much, working 35 hours a week. Well, I think there would be some economists who would disagree with the success uh, aspect of it, but I agree with you. That was the objective behind it. Uh, and in many cases, it has been successful. I think there's some tweaking to do, to say the least. Where in some industries, like I hear when I update our books from the hotel owners, who are frustrated at the 35-hour limitation. I think, and they threw a bone to the employers, giving them more flexibility in requiring people to come in on weekends or working right. late shifts exactly. and so on. The, the point I want to make on that is that for Americans to sit back and to think, hang on, I can get, you know, is it important to work 40 hours a week? Why not? reduce the work hours and, and not laugh at them, but understand what matters in life, what's most important. And to the French, it's very easy. It's what I'm reading. It's my next meal. It's my next vacation. Oh, yeah. Getting, getting our French guides to work during lunch when we're filming a TV show in France is, is like 
that's a sacrilege. No, it's lunchtime. You There's know, nothing more important than a lunch. I can't work without a good lunch. I mean, I'm a civilized person here. I'm not a slave. I think this is true between Americans and Europeans in general. I mean, when we renovated the house that we bought, the biggest frustration that, that I, and I thought I was a sensitive American, had was wanting these guys to work overtime to get this house done on my schedule yeah. and to step back and see, you know, what, there's other things that are more important. Well, these are good examples of fine points of a culture that mm-hmm. a lot of travelers can misunderstand. And as tour guides, that's one challenge that I think both Steve and I have is prepping people so that they can understand, oh, they do it differently, but they like it this way. It works well for them. It's just exciting to, as travelers, be exposed to different ways different cultures deal with their problems. When you're traveling in France, first of all, this country has some, some fine points in the culture that are tough for a lot of Americans to deal with. They love their language. Uh, isn't there, there's even a law now that protects the Frenchness of the French language, isn't there? Oh, there always has been, and there's a, an entire group of people, an institute that, that meet to try to preserve the purity of the language. I understand if you're a business and you call your, your business uh, some American catchphrase, mm-hmm. you know, feedback or fast food or, or check this, uh, you actually have a, a, what, some, some, some sort of a tax uh, penalty or something. Yeah, that, that, that they pay. Going knowingly, and it, yeah, it's well, they do. So they'll they'll name their business a, oh. a international word, uh, and then knowing they'll have to pay a, a penalty, and they just they just absorb that. Exactly. And what they're trying to do is to minimize the infiltration of business-oriented English language into their. Um, God, so the, it's, the French language is such a beautiful, beautiful language, even if you can even if you can't understand it. Right, and um, some of it seems sort of funny to to me, but at the same time. What I like to see is the um, individuality of all the countries in Europe preserved. France, I think, is the biggest country in Western Europe. It's the size of Texas. Mm-hmm. And I think you could call it the most diverse country I in think Western so. Europe. Uh, yeah. I Talk think a little so. bit about that. It just seems so variety to well, me, so full of different... I mean, you got all of Europe right there. Yeah, yeah. the size of Texas is a good point. 60 million people uh, in a country the size of Texas, first of all, makes you think it would be very crowded. It's not. People live in dense populations, and then there's wide open spaces between... Oh, there's the Atlantic Ocean to the north and northwest, and of course the Mediterranean to the south. Three different mountain ranges, three hmm. impressive mountain ranges. The most Americans know of the Alps, and the highest peaks in Europe aren't in Switzerland, or in Germany, or in Italy. They're in France, Mont Blanc, Mont Blanc. fifteen thousand eight hundred feet, I think. Taller than I'm close. Wow. Yeah, and then there's of course the Pyrenees that border um, Spain and France, and then the center of the country is the less known but almost seductive mountain range of the Massif Central. Now, see, I've never been to that, and I've never even heard of it. I don't know what it's like, and I'm typical of a lot of Americans. We know about the Riviera. Mm-hmm. We know about the Chateaus of the Loire. We know about Mont Saint-Michel in Paris. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's overrated and underrated parts of France, I would imagine. What's your take on that? Um, yes, there are overrated and underrated sites, I would say. Any region in France, it's, it's a funny thing, is... Um, it's a pretty place to go. I mean, all of France is nice to look at. I don't think there's an area that's unappealing to look at. Alsace-Lorraine? Yeah, even... I love the Alsace. Oh, that's, that's Rust Belt, isn't it? That's... No, well, I mean, there's some cities. You're right. There's some cities that... that that's fact, the area up by Belgium. Right. But the yeah. countryside's a lot. The Rue du Vage, you know. Mm-hmm. Strasbourg is one of the prettiest big cities in France I know of, really. Mm-hmm. And one of the most interesting ones from a... Uh, uh, making it more livable today. Most progressive city in France, I would say, among them, with Toulouse. But... Um, over an underrated site, yeah. There are – the uh, Nice tends to underwhelm a lot of Americans. They have this image, I think, of the Riviera that's hard to sustain. Mm-hmm. And it is. It's rocky beach mm-hmm. with um, – yeah. It's not, a, not exactly comfortable Provence, to wander into the water. Everybody knows Provence from the – you're in Provence, right? Right, is, right. You get there. Are you, are you satisfied? Uh, I am. Yeah, I think so. I think sometimes Americans are surprised at the number of uh, tourists in some areas like Provence. That does draw bec- – in part – uh, because of that book and that series and film, and, but also it's been a popular uh, destination for Europeans in particular uh, for a long time. I like the concept of la profonde, profound France. Yeah, what is France, that? La France profonde. Is that actually what French people say? Yeah, they use that. Yeah. So this is like classic France. Yeah. Un, um, say that again in French. La France profonde. La France profonde. The profound France. Where, where's for the French person? What is profoundly? Well, that French? could be almost in a variety of places. It's where you can go and find. Unchanged France, pure France. Because I think of Dordogne and Burgundy for that. What do you mm-hmm. think? Good examples. Why? It depends where you are. I mean, why, why, you, with, why would you say Dordogne? The Dordogne has preserved its um, its heritage because it has not had uh, freeways or bullet trains through it to bring in tourists in big numbers. Now, this is like the area climate. between basically south of France, but what? Southwestern. More, southwestern, more mm-hmm. towards the Atlantic. Yeah. Southwestern France toward... Um, Dordogne. Yeah, and toward the Pyrenees in that general direction. And the English have discovered it. 
They have for a long time ago. They like the cheap homes. They like the foie gras. Well, that's how it started, is right. Um, Cheap homes, because it didn't have the speedy trains. There aren't any big cities in the Dordogne, so employment. You know, the thing to consider about France, like comparing it to Italy, is that uh, 500 years ago, I think something like 80% of Italy was considered urbanized. Today, it's about 65% of France is considered urbanized. This is one rural country. And on any trip you're going to take to France, it's going to be Paris and a lot of rural areas. Because what other cities do you plan to go to in France? Not many. Maybe Nice. That's There's right. Be- People don't dream about other cities. There's not Salzburgs and, and or Venices and Florences. Be- Venice, Paris. Florence, Rome, Milan, Naples. No. So in France, you're going to the big city, and then you're hitting regions. Normandy, and you identify by region, Loire too. Loire Valley. Yeah, you're going the to the Côte Loire. Côte we're, we're going to Burgundy. South we're going to the Alps. Whereas in Italy, or in Spain, I think, is similar. Again, having updated your books, I'm going to Granada. I'm going to Seville. I'm not going to to uh, uh, Castile. I right. think you orient your itinerary around the huh. cities. And, and there's that's, a difference, then, between France and other countries. And I think it. it's appropriate. Yeah. And I think, vive la différence. Um, in France, you should revel in the countryside. And the Dordogne has about as beautiful as it gets to bring it back to that. But people can't earn a living down there, so more and more houses have become available for sale. Um, and over the years, the Brits and the Dutch as well, and some Americans certainly. So the countryside is is having – are they having this dynamic where the big jobs are in Toulouse and Paris and mm-hmm. it's uh, depopulating the countryside? Sure. Because I've heard there's like little SOS uh, services for dying towns. You know, you, you get it right down where there's almost no shop in a town and then the town's going to be terminally ill. It's a fascinating study you could do. In part, it's people like us, who my family, who bought, that bought a home in a small village in Burgundy and the Brits and the Dutch who are sustaining some of these villages by investing sometimes huge sums of money into the ancient structures and creating jeets, you know, country homes for rent out of them, at least preserving the homes from mm-hmm. derelict duties. Sometimes they're buying restaurants. In fact, in our village, I, I just learned the 13th century Cistercian Abbey was just bought by a British businessman who plans to turn it into a luxury hotel. Now, there's two sides to that coin. The valley where we live is disappointed uh, because of the historical importance of this. On the other hand, there are a lot of those sister abbeys in France, and the country can't begin to finance the upkeep of all of them. The purchase of this abbey by the British hotelier will keep it lively, keep people in this rural part of France. Well, this is a choice Europe is having to make across the board. Europe's population is going down. They've got to have immigrants and expats to come in to keep things lively. I was just in Venice, and the Chinese people are buying up all the small businesses in Venice. And local people say, well, nobody else is going to do it. You know, the the young kids go away and they stay away. Same thing's perhaps true with these old uh, palaces and and countryside uh, villages and so on. Exactly. France is, I think, uh, a place that Americans... They need to take a, a thoughtful approach to it. It's, it's not quite uh, as simple as some other countries, but those who do have the help of a good guide or a good guidebook or a, a thoughtful preparation can understand that I think France, the more you know it, the more you like it. Steve Smith, thank you very much. Merci beaucoup. Au, Au revoir. In the Industrial Age, France built a network of canals connecting the Atlantic with the Mediterranean. But today, you won't find boats filled with coal and industrial goods. You'll find boats with lounging, relaxing tourists. You can barge simple and cheap or pricey and posh on the canals of France. That's next, as we travel with Rick Steves. I'm Rick Steves, and this is Travel with Rick Steves. And today, we're traveling by barge in France. To me, Barging in France is one of the great opportunities and options that travelers have that are, is quite mysterious to Americans, but it's one way to slow down, and if ever you're going to smell the roses as you travel through France, this is a way to do it. But it's kind of confusing and a little bit um, challenging for Americans without some local help, so I've invited three barge captains here, and they're good friends of mine. They tour with me uh, with our groups through France, and we've got them in our studio today. We've got Marie Altman and her husband, William Altman, and Patrick Vidal. They've all worked all throughout France on barges, and it's great to have you all here. Thanks for joining us. Merci. Merci. Marie and William and Patrick, I'm always going so fast. I take the train or I rent a car, and I, I want to spend the money to use the auto route, the, the autobahn in France, so mm-hmm. I can pay the tolls and get there in a hurry. Of course, barging is much, much different. Tell me just some examples uh, from your experience how barging can be a beautiful way to have a vacation in France. Well, generally speaking, you spend a week on the barge. And in a week, you would cover, let's say, 100 miles, max. So it means you're really located in just one specific area. And you get to, to see the scenery that you would never see 
otherwise. I mean, that's something you, you would never see from a road, from the plane, from the balloon. You would never see this kind of a scenery. All of you were barge captains, actually. Absolutely. I yeah. used to cook on barges. You used to actually, cook? Yes. Oh, that's an important part of the barge experience. <laughs> yes, that's right. Yes, I would, uh, we would be cruising in the morning, so I would uh, prepare lunch, you know, and uh, we would ha- actually uh, prepare lunch and dinners every day on the boat. These were just little microwaved packages that you buy at the of supermarket? Of course, yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, we would buy everything fresh for the local market every day because, you know, it's very easy, you know, when you stop each day, uh, when you move somewhere, you know, along the canal or you can easily the next morning go to the next uh, shop or the next market to get fresh food. Well, I, I just wanted to say that uh, she has she has first to feed the captain. Oh, that's very important, okay. William. Huh? Yes. And then after, you can feed the Because if the, the captain's clients. not happy, the barge yeah. doesn't go. <laughs> now, I, I had forgotten that there's actually two different... You've got to make the choice. Are you going to rent a barge on your own? Let's just talk the, the basics here. You can rent the barge and be the captain yourself and do your own cooking, or you can take a tour. And uh, you guys worked for a tour company that rented barges, and that was rented by the week. I suppose if you take a barge for your own self-service... It's by the week also. No, it could be. It could be. It could be a weekend as well. It could be two weeks. It couple could be, of days. It whatever. could be a couple of days. It's, okay. it's all. Uh, it's First all of all, if you're going independent, let's say you're a budget traveler and you, you know it's, there's no storms to deal with here. You're just you're just uh, cruising down a little canal. Uh, it's not that tough. Is it very expensive for a budget traveler to rent a barge? It's not cheap. Let's let's put mm-hmm. it like that. It's not it's not cheap. I mean, uh, the fact is, those barges are better to be rented by several people. Okay, let's say you have two couples, four people traveling together. There's two staterooms and a kitchen and a barge. Would it cost two hundred euros a day or what ballpark? I that would be uh, close to uh, two thousand. Let's say two thousand dollars for for the week, just for two, for for the rent of the, uh, okay. of the of the boat. So you're talking three hundred dollars a day. What you yeah, have roughly. for three hundred dollars a day, if two couples are traveling together, what's that? That's uh, about the cost of uh, two rooms in a medium class hotel. Absolutely. So Absolutely. if you take the money you would spend on hotels, two people to double date it, you know, four people to share the cost. It's not that much more expensive than staying in hotels, yeah. and you have a kitchen. Mm-hmm. And you don't have any transportation expenses because your 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 room is floating, mm-hmm. and and plus you have the bikes, and they come with bikes. Yeah, yeah. Ah, okay. So you can use it to get all your supplies, and you can just tie the barge up and bike and hike and visit the village. You go at your own tempo. There's no requirement to go anywhere. Where no. do you where do you spend well, the night? In, anywhere where you can tie it up. You just uh, spend the night. You like uh, a specific spot. You stop here. That must be nice. Yeah, it's fantastic. Interesting thing is that along those canals, in uh, 99% of the cases, you've got a tow path running along. Right. That means we're talking about bikes. We're talking about walking along there. You can just, uh, next lock, you get out of the boat and you walk along and uh, somebody's driving the boat and uh, and you meet them on the next, uh, on the following lock. You got four people. One person drives the boat. Everybody else takes an excursion. You meet at the next lock. Do you, do you sort of navigate by locks? I'll see you in two locks or something like this. That works pretty well. And, and very often the, the walkers are at the lock before the boat. Is that right? By the time you get out of the lock, and it's a slow process. And uh, if you miss the lock, I mean, it's uh, between locks. Sometimes it's just half a mile. Okay. Sometimes. Now sometimes it sounds it's a bit more. The towpath is reminiscent of the uh, historic reason for these canals. Uh, during the industrial age, they actually dug these canals in order to move um, coal and minerals, or what, what? and why they, they they started the well. One of the oldest uh, canal in France is uh, the, the the one in the Midi, uh, the Canal uh-huh. de Midi which goes from the Mediterranean to, to uh, the ocean. So you can go from the Atlantic to the Mediterranean by barge. Yeah, absolutely. Actually going over the continental divide. Mm-hmm. What's that? Mm-hmm. I mean, so you're taking locks up, stair-stepping all the way up to the highest point, and then it's locks down. Absolutely. All right. I've had some places when they, they decided that as it was a little bit too high, they wanted to dug a tunnel to go through because they couldn't go all the way to the top of the dividing place. So you take the barge in a tunnel? And you take the barge into the tunnel. How There's long is that? The one, one I'm thinking of in, uh, in Burgundy, where close by where Mary and William are living, is two miles long, something like that. Okay. Now, there are barge rental places wherever there are canals? Well, you have a, a, quite a few uh, canals which, which have been closed recently mm-hmm. because, uh, I mean, they, 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 there is no commerce anymore with uh, barges. But they're open for recreation. They, we, yeah, but some have been closed cl- completely. 
and yeah. and they, they they will never reopen because okay. it's, it would cost too too much. But money the industrial to... use of the canals is no longer; it's recreational uh, mostly. The canal itself, not anymore. But the the rivers are still, of course, used of course, a lot. Yeah. Uh, you know that on the Seine River, on the Rhone River, on the Saône River, you you see a lot of barges filled up with uh, sand or whatever. Right now, what's it like when you you're driving your your canal boat and you hit you come to a a lock, what happens? If you're lucky, the lock is open. <laughs> if the lock is closed, <laughs> what do you do? Sometimes the lock keeper is having a nap, so you have to wait until uh, he's finishing his nap in order to uh, operate the lock. So you need to be in a relaxed frame of mind. If you're going to be uptight <laughs> because the lock keeper is taking a nap, you shouldn't be barging. Is that right? Absolutely. You take your time. Yeah. You Let's could take it as right. a therapy as well. I'm thinking if you're a little bit too stressed to go on the barge, it will calm you down. It There's might no be good therapy that, for yeah. me. So now let's say the, the lock keeper is awake and he's there. And what, what do you do actually to get to the lock? Well, you, you just wait until the, the, the lock keeper is ready to open the, the, the gate. You enter and then you jump out of the barge. I mean, you tie up your barge, you jump out of the, of the barge and help the, the lock keeper to so close you're the door. You're involved all in the work, absolutely. Yeah. And, uh, and then, of course, uh, you get to talk to the lock keeper. Even if you don't talk, I mean, sometimes the, the, the signs are enough. Is there a little culture of the locks? Are these people interesting characters? Are they part of the experience? Pretty much, yeah. Quite a few in Burgundy. Yeah, yeah they're <laughs> pretty interesting character. They're very French and very uh, local people. I mean, it's, it's kind of a, it's kind of getting into rural France with uh, with people who have been doing this job for for centuries. Originally, at the after the uh, the First World War, all the jobs as lock keepers were given to widows from the war. Huh. Because that was that was an easy right. enough job to right. run, and it would come from through the family like that. And some of them have been the lock keeping for generation. There could still be some widows from World War Two. Why not? Why not? Well, they've been remarried. Since. Pretty remarried since. Okay. Also, very often they have their their uh, their own products to sell. You know, at the in front of the uh, lock house, so you could buy uh, honey. You know, like it is made locally, or hmm. you know, products yes. like this, which makes it even more interesting and uh, a little entertainment at the lock. Is there ever a concern about too much traffic, where there's a long line at a lock, or it's less interesting because there's so many boats on the canal? Well, for example, the the Canal du Midi uh, is is very popular uh, during the the fall and the spring. So it it's can be very busy. Plus, as a independent uh, traveler, you have to wait for the big commercial barges. I mean, when I say commercial barges, as the big hotel barges, mm. they have the priority. So mm. sometimes you can be tied up uh, for uh, a bit longer than uh, you would uh, expect, but. You have to be prepared for that. I mean, it's part of the the, the trip as well. I mean, uh, you, there is no point to, to to rush anyway. You're not going anywhere. You're you, living for absolutely. the moment. And then if you if you if you feel like uh, it's going to take too long, you just tie up your your boat and uh, take your bicycle, go to the next village, and and do uh, uh, other thing. Just uh, have a coffee in one of the uh, uh, cafe there, and then come back and then uh, keep on uh, uh, riding or your boat and. Uh, that must have been very nice work. Tell me some story. Was it was it enjoyable work? Very barge much, camping. Very much so, because you get to uh, to discover also uh, France in depth. Really, huh? I mean, when when I say that, I mean we 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 French. We know France very well, and we've traveled uh, by road a lot. But uh, through the canals, you get to to discover uh, another aspect of uh, of the life uh, in France. Well, I think we fell in love with this uh, life, uh, boat life. You know, the first time we arrived on a boat, William and I. I mean, I was still a student, and it was just like a summer job, and uh, we really fell in love. And after that, we wanted to buy one and to live on a boat. You know, right. it's so enjoyable. That was the the period of time when I was a, a music teacher. And I did that uh, during the summer to help uh, Marie uh, for mm-hmm. for just a few months. And then, uh, as she said, I mean, we fell in love and decided to uh, to do that all year round. And of course, when you, when we got our first uh, child, we couldn't do that anymore because right. you you're when you do that, I mean, it's one week after the other, and you're here for for six months. So you cannot do that, of course, with kids. So we had to to quit and and start a. Uh, working for uh, Rick Steve. 
<laughs> so that's sort of a subculture. The whole uh, the whole uh, people that do this barge barge boating and so on. Yeah, it's the, it's the ultimate backdoor traveling. I think so. I've I got mean, to try you, this. I've never done you it. You really enter towns, enter regions through the, through the back door. Yeah, exactly. Because everybody's entering through the train system, through the... Uh, Parking through the, their cars. Uh, in the car. I mean, we know Dijon, where we used to work around very well, through the port there, where nobody goes. It's outside of the of the tourist area there. Absolutely. And uh, it's very, very back door to me. Now, a moment ago, you mentioned the... Uh, Canal Midi is that that's the big famous canal around Carcassonne in the south is mm-hmm. that right Absolutely Now what are the top 3 or 4 most popular romantic beautiful canals that people might want to consider if they're going to be canaling in France I I would say uh, I'm sure Patrick will agree but uh, I, I would say the my favorite one is is the Canal du Nivernais The Canal du Nivernais is a tiny canal which goes south of uh, the city of Auxerre in Burgundy. Huh? Okay. And um, it's it's really a wild canal. Really? I mean, it's the, some of the gates are still wooden gates. Uh, they they have they hardly have a, a system to operate uh, the, the gates as well. I mean, it, you have to push uh, the gates on your own. And it's it's just uh, magnificent. I mean, it's, yeah, it's the probably lands- the landscape is, is exceptional. Auxerre yeah. is it's just a hundred miles south of Paris. South of Paris. Okay, yeah. so you're south, ha- of, south Paris. of Paris. And the name of that canal is? Nivernais, N-I-V-E-R-N-A-I-S. Nivernais. Yeah. Okay. Canal du Nivernais. That's we'll, one of the nicest. We'll put some specifics on this on our website at ricksteves.com so people can have the spelling of that place. What's another great canal somebody might consider? I will add the, uh, because I live in Brittany, I will add the uh, the little Brittany area here, which is completely unknown to most of the of the canal canal world there. It's completely detached to the rest of the of the canal network there. But it's it's lovely. It's uh, it's also very rugged, mm. very very wild, and uh, out of the out of the beaten path. And, and Brittany has some rugged terrain, so this would be dramatic. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. It's very impressive. And you said it's detached from the rest of the industrial canal, so Absolutely. it served the industrial needs of it, Brittany. It actually. served only Brittany there. Canal du Midi. Talk about that for a minute. Canal uh, also for me. Uh, canal du Midi is one of the the nicest in in, in France. Uh, it was first uh, built uh, at the end of the, uh, the 17th, 17th century, century yeah. early mm-hmm. uh, early uh, 18th century, the time of uh, Louis XIV. So they were investing a lot of money with their engineers, oh, a lot of, in yes, boosting uh-huh. the local economy by letting people move their goods cheaper and safer by water. What was of by the local road. economy? Wine. Is that right? Yeah, that's what that's what it's based on. It's wine, carrying yes. wine up to Bordeaux, up to up to uh, mm-hmm. the Rhone River, wow. and be able to carry it all around France after that. Yeah. I'm talking with uh, three of my tour guide friends from France, uh, Marie and William Altman and Patrick Vidal. All of them have worked as barge captains on the canals, barge captains and barge cooks on the canals of France. And we're talking about a slow way to travel. You don't have the TGV uh, train and an auto route to get you from A to B in a hurry. The actual reason you're traveling is to be on the barge. You know, when we're traveling through France on the barges, there's two ways to enjoy the canals of France renting a self-service canal boat, which is generally two staterooms and a kitchen, and it costs about the same as two moderate-priced double rooms in hotels. In other words, if two couples are traveling together, they can take their hotel money and invest it in a barge, and it's about a wash. The other way to go is to hire a barge captain with a cook to take you around. Now, that would be a little more expensive, but obviously a lot more plush and uh, better food and better service and guiding. The fact is the, you've got very different levels as well. You start from the very, very simple, I would say simple barge there, where you've got, let's say, 24 people on the barge, and those boats are something like 130 feet long. Something. Oh, really? So, so this is a real, like a tour bus on no, the water? Like a tour bus on the water, yeah. You've okay. got 24 people there. Rooms are small. The service is simple. The food is simple there. And you go to you go to an amazing level of uh, of something like four people on a barge with the crew me- with the, with more crew members than than people on a barge there, okay. and you've got all the variety of uh, of price and uh, I guess it would start around two thousand dollars a week a head, Three. something like that. Of course, it's uh, those kind of uh, barges. Even even the the, the lowest uh, level, it's 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 pretty upscale. I mean, uh, because you have a. Uh, all the people working for for you. I mean, mm-hmm. it's just like being in a hotel. And uh, 
Of course, you That's have right. all the categories in so the hotel. So this hotels. is a floating hotel, really. It's a floating hotel, exactly. And Marie, you, you were cooking for these two. Yes, I, I did, actually. Uh, very enjoyable because people, uh, well, they were coming here to cruise on the canal to uh, look at the very, I mean, the nice scenery, but also to have uh, good food and to taste the gastronomy of, uh, of uh, France. So lunch and dinners were made. Everything was made on the boat from fresh products from the market. So each date was something different, and they had their little menu that they could uh, consult in the morning. Also, what we're going to have today, and the dinners, uh, you know, were very uh, intimate, uh, right. depending also on which kind of bar. Of course, if you are four people, six people, you can be also a family traveling together, which makes it even more uh, intimate and interesting. Yeah. Wow. So you get seasonal food and local. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. If you are in the midi, you get uh, fresh fish, uh, mm. fresh. Uh, seafood. And Sounds great. I have a couple of email uh, questions. Lisa in Bothell, Washington, and her husband enjoyed a canal barge in the Loire, but they were unprepared for the tight accommodations. They were sleeping toe-to-toe, not very romantic, they said, in the constant camaraderie of their cruise mates. So how, how that's do you what we that? That's what we talked uh, about a few minutes before. I mean, you got all kind of levels of travel there. You can, you go from 24 people on, on the same, ba- same barge or four people for the same size of barge. So obviously, the bedrooms, bedrooms are going to be Different size there. Okay, so, so you should uh, you should get a you could probably these days on the web know what kind of a configuration. Absolutely, you have all the information there. Absolutely. Can you swim in the canals? Uh, you can, but I would not. You would not. Why not? No, it's very it's pretty dirty. 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 Pretty dirty. So yeah. you don't want to yeah. swim. Yeah. So you yeah. can uh, you'll have to take a little walk from your boat and have another place to swim. Patrick and William and Marie, thank you very much for an insight into a wonderful uh, and underappreciated uh, aspect of traveling in your beautiful country, France. Merci bien. Merci. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. There's more online in the radio section at ricksteves.com. Join us next time as we travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines. With their new Advantage Award booking tool, it's easier than ever to book to over 800 Advantage Award destinations online at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly.